We're back in Galatians this week, and since Pastor Chad preached the sermon and his prayer, we can just all go home now. Uh, I'm kidding. Thank you, Pastor Chad. Um, last week, we began with the question, what does God look like? And the reason I asked that question was to start by pointing out that it's the Spirit of God that produces God's character in God's children. We spent time looking at the works of the flesh and contrasted them in many ways with God's character so that even with the backdrop of, of sin and darkness, the light of God's character was on full display, even last week. But this week, we will be looking directly into the face at the light of God's character. So I, if you would, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to be in verses 22 through 26 this week. You can find that on page 975 in the Bible under your chair or the chair in front of you. But read with me as I read along. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I believe that the main point we ought to consider in this text this morning is this. By faith. This whole, all of Galatians has been about faith first. By faith, the Holy Spirit produces fruit, brings freedom and leads us in paths of righteousness. By faith, the Holy Spirit produces fruit, brings freedom, and leads us in paths of righteousness, and we'll walk through those one at a time. First of all, fruit of the Spirit. We're looking at verse 22 toward the beginning of 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Last week, remember in verse 14, Paul said that the works of the flesh are evident we talked about how that doesn't necessarily mean they're always visible, but they are discernible. The works are perceivable because they characterize a person's life. It is obvious that this person is not spirit-filled because they're living in opposition to the Spirit. It's evident. This kind of life is evidence that someone is still in slavery to the flesh. Now, I think the same can be said of the fruit of the Spirit here. It is evident Though the difference is with this fruit is it should increase over time. It should become increasingly visible. We bear more fruit as we walk by the Spirit, as we abide in Jesus. It increasingly becomes more and more apparent that the Spirit indwells someone because the Spirit's transformation of our heart inevitably changes the work of our hands. The work of the flesh is no longer characteristic of the life of a Spirit-filled Christian. But the fruit of the Spirit is characteristic of the life of a Spirit-filled Christian. So we would expect someone who has trusted in Christ to exhibit more and more of this fruit over time, albeit imperfectly. Because we do live in the already, not yet. We battle with sin and the flesh and the devil and the world until Jesus will come back and make all things new. But with that in mind, let's start working through verse 22 together. 
Starts off with but. There's that conjunction. Remember, you didn't come today thinking you'd be learning about conjunctions, but here we are again. There's conjunctions in the text, and they matter. It relates to the verse before it, the, the works of the flesh. From verses 16 through 18, we already know that the spirit is opposed to the flesh, and the flesh opposed to the spirit. By the spirit, we don't do whatever we want without the law. Remember, the spirit is who ensures that we will fulfill the law, even though he frees us from the law. This list of fruit is complete contrast. It is opposed to those works of the flesh that came before it. And then we see this, the fruit of the Spirit. Now let's stop here one more time before we get into the list. Prepositions matter too, remember? Conjunctions, prepositions. Think back to works of the flesh. Here we have fruit of the Spirit. This again, I think, is referring to the source of those works, the source of the fruit. And what I mean is this, the works of the flesh are those that originate in us, from us, that we produce out of our fallen nature, our sinfulness, as we walk in the darkness, rejecting God, rejecting his design, rejecting his authority, and pursue what we want when we want it on our terms. This is evidence of slavery to sin, slavery to the flesh, slavery under the law, or slavery to death. Think of Ephesians 2. If you haven't read that lately, I would encourage you to read Ephesians 2 this week. Paul says you were once dead in your trespasses and sins until God made you alive. Now, contrary, the fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, originates in God. The Holy Spirit produces this fruit in us because it is God who alone exhibits these fruits perfectly and therefore God alone who can produce these fruits in us by His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces God's character from within us. We talked about that last week. What Paul has been arguing from the, this entire time against the Judaizers, the Spirit will do it. We've marred the image of God in us because of our sin. We cannot, by our own power, imitate or look like God the way He designed us to or act like God the way He designed us to. We need the work of the Spirit to cleanse us from the inside. And then once He cleanses us, after cleansing us, to produce the fruit in us. Which means the whole process, we're utterly dependent on God to produce this fruit in us. We cannot produce it ourselves. Hear me this morning. You cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit by yourself. And church, being, being dependent on God is the best place to be. It's the safest place to be because God will never fail us. And He always keeps His promises. If He says He'll do it, He'll do it. We might say we're going to love today. We might say we'll have joy today. But that doesn't mean that we are going to have love or have joy if we depend on ourselves. We can trust God. The whole promise of this section is that the Spirit will, it's a promise, will produce His fruit in the Christian. That's a promise. So do you believe that promise this morning? Do you believe do you remind yourself of this promise? Do you pray with that promise in your mind that, the, that God will do this? This is one of the many reasons why the Spirit has come to live in the Christian to ensure that we walk in righteousness, to ensure that we live lives of obedience. Because like I said a few weeks ago, we walk by the Spirit's power in the Spirit's path. And if we do this, the Spirit will produce this kind of fruit in our lives. We don't walk by the Spirit's power or walk in the Spirit's path. Do you know what we're going to see? Desires of the flesh. So let's look briefly at each of these fruit and, and what it reveals about God's character because each of these originates first 
with our eternal God, the one true God. But like we mentioned last week, as the Spirit produces the fruit in us, it is evident in us in community. So I'll give a brief application to the end of each. First, love. If you want more on love, read 1 John 4 this week. Love is first because love is the defining characteristic of our God. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. This is and should be the first of the fruit because in many ways, the rest of the fruit begins with this. It begins with love. Our triune God has eternally existed perfectly, three persons in one, and manifested this love first within himself between his persons. With regard to us, he showed us his great love by first creating us in his image. And as image bearers of God, we know that love because he has created us to love him, our God, and love our neighbor, the other image bearer that he's created, the way that he is love and loves us, his creation. So we see this love in who he is. But we also see his love in how he manifested his love to us. I'm only, I'm only going to take salvation into consideration here as an example, but, but think with me of all the ways God has manifested his love to you. One, in God even creating the heavens and the earth for our enjoyment. That would be one of the thousands of other ways God has shown his love to us. But specifically in salvation, just hear these three movements. First, John 3.16, the Father so loved the world, he gave his Son. What greater sacrifice in human history than this? Galatians 2.20, the Son loved us and gave himself up for us. What greater service? Romans 5.5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We see the Trinity at work in love. When the Holy Spirit takes residence in us by faith, the first thing produced in us, in a redeemed man or woman, is a love for God. Whereas we hated God and loved ourselves, whereas we rejected God and accepted ourselves, because that is the work of the flesh, ultimately a greater love for me, myself, rather than God or my neighbor, where we had turned away from God, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace, he has saved us through faith, and that by the Spirit. And now the first thing that he produces is love for God, without which we would not know God. And then while producing a love for God, for himself, the Holy Spirit in turn produces a deeper love for our neighbors. 1 John 4, 8, I'll read it out. This is the verse. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That is to say that the fruit of love can be seen in community, in the church. It shows up as we love one another the way that God has first loved us and has given himself up for us. Faith working through love, love through service. We see it in the community. Next fruit, joy. You want to learn more about joy this week? Read Philippians. Philippians is full of joy. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. <laughs> If we are thinking back to God's character, okay, in order for God to fill us with joy, he himself must be full of joy. Am I wrong? He himself must possess perfect joy. And our triune God, who is love, enjoys that love amidst himself in the Godhead. There's a perfect satisfaction. And with that satisfaction in God, joy exists. Something important for you and I to note that the joy of the Lord is in the Lord himself. Joy is produced in us by the Spirit when we find, hear me, 
our deepest satisfaction, our deepest delight in God who alone can give us ultimate joy. Do you find that kind of satisfaction in God? Do you delight in God in those ways? Do you pursue that kind of satisfaction to the point where you're not, you're not letting him go until he gives you the joy that you're asking from him because him alone, he alone can give it to you. Joy is not in the world, nor does it come from the world. Joy is not found in circumstances, and joy is not ultimately found in people. Although Paul does make a few statements in his letters to the churches to show that relationship between joy in the Lord and joy that we can share as believers. For example, 1 Thessalonians, he says, you are my joy to the church. Well, does this mean Paul's joy is contingent on the people? Absolutely not. He says, rejoice always. This man is full of the Spirit. It is contingent on the Lord. In Romans 14, he says, joy comes from the Holy Spirit. But... Just as our triune God delights in himself, when we are delighting in him in community, we also delight in God through one another. Have you ever delighted in God by seeing God working in your brother or sister? Each one of us is made in the image of God. Each one of us is filled by faith in Christ with the Holy Spirit. Each one of us enjoying God more as we enjoy one another in community. Do you want that kind of joy? Seek after God for it. If you trust in Christ, you can have that joy because you possess the God who has perfect joy and satisfaction in himself and alone can give you that kind of joy. So seek after God if you want joy. And if you're a Christian but you don't feel that joy, then I want to encourage you when you pray this week, just stop asking God for everything except this one thing for him to remind you of all the ways that he loves you. Remind him of all the things that he's done for you, out of his great love for you. And write a list of all the things God has done for you, beginning with the very fact that he gave you life in your mother's womb. And then go throughout your life writing these things down. And if you don't have joy by the end of it, I think you have a different problem. I think the problem is a hardness of heart that you've got to ask the Lord to forgive you and cleanse you of so that you can be in right relationship with him and enjoy him because Jesus gives this kind of joy. John 15. Abide in me and in my love that your, my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Jesus, with the joy set before him, endured the cross, the greatest act of suffering in all of history, with joy. This is a satisfied joy in God, his Father, and we can have that as well. Pursue after God for that. Another fruit, peace. Our God is a God of peace, and our God of peace, as our God of peace, he's a peacemaker. He makes Peace, ultimately, he, he reveals this to us in that Christ himself coming into our fallenness, living in our place, dying and rising in our place, made peace, ultimate peace between us and our God. That's the first kind of peace that we need in this life is peace with our creator. If we don't have peace with our creator, then we can't have peace with anybody else. And those who repent and trust in Jesus have that peace. They have that peace with God, meaning they're, they're now in right standing before God. They're no longer destined to receive his wrath because when God sees them, he sees a child. He sees their, his child redeemed and ransomed by Christ's blood. And in Christ, God also made peace between us, Jew and Gentile, mankind, where, where our lives were characterized by biting and devouring throughout human history, selfishly loving me more than God. One doesn't have to look too far in human history to recognize how deeply dark and disgusting the human heart is, how consumed we are with ourselves. God alone can bring peace 
between men. God alone can reconcile men. It's God's peace alone that can reconcile the hatred that we see in our country between races, ethnicities in our world, genders, and the remainder of the countries around the world. It is God's peace alone that can give us peace here. No policies, no governmental tactics, no foreign affairs, no democracy, no dictatorship, no tyranny. None of it can bring us that kind of everlasting peace that only an everlasting God can give us. Nothing. Where is your hope this morning for peace? There is a peace that surpasses all understanding, and it doesn't come from the president. There is a peace that God happily gives to us when we cast our anxieties onto him. And this peace is ultimately from God because there's no shadow in him due to change. He's never anxious. He's never nervous. He's never frightened because he is the cornerstone. The psalmist say he's our fortress, our strength, our shield. And this peace, when given to us in Christ, is a peace from God's wrath, a peace from the stresses of life that daily consume our thoughts, a peace from the world, the flesh, and the devil, a peace that can never be taken away because this peace is promised to you. Patience. I think a better translation of this word is forbearance. Forbearance is what our God, who is love, has chosen to do with a sinful human race. Another word I think is helpful is long-suffering. Though our sins are high-handed, though we spat in God's face before we do Christ, he forbears. He suffers long. He chose to position himself in a place of long suffering with us that his perfect patience might be on full display to us. That his love might be on full display as he's slow to anger with us, as he is patient with us, waiting for just that right time when he would send the Lord Jesus to pay for every penalty of sin and cover over our multitude of transgression rather than striking us down in judgment the moment we deserved it. If this is how the Lord is with us, how much more, as the Spirit produces forbearance in us, are we to suffer long with one another's shortcomings, one another's sins? God is perfect. We are sinful. God, who is rich in mercy, forbore with us and then poured all, not some, all of his love out on us in Christ. How much more are we who are united to Christ by faith, indwelt by the Spirit of God, to forbear with one another for as long as it takes? This one has the potential to feel the most draining, I'll be honest. Because some brothers or sisters, let's just be honest, you find that you give them chance after chance after chance and nothing changes. But God calls you to forbear, Christian. And you can forbear, even with the most difficult people in this community or any other community, because of who God is and the power that the Spirit promises you because He's at work within you. Kindness and goodness. I'm going to talk about these together. They're closely related. Kindness has to do with God's willingness and his ability to show us mercy because he himself has revealed to us that he is merciful and gracious. And we know also that God is good. 
And so, because he's good, he does good. All that he does is good. Both the mercy and goodness of God are on full display in the million, the trillion acts of mercy and goodness that he has shown to each one of us throughout history. But if I were to just stop and ask you to think with me for just one minute, if I was to ask you to write down 100 ways, 100 ways that God has shown kindness or goodness to you, every one of you in this room could easily write 100 things. Easily. Starting with every single second of breath that you've had in your lungs, even this morning, it was owed to the kindness and goodness of God. All acts of mercy, all acts of kindness, and all acts of goodness. God doesn't have to keep you alive, but he does because he loves you. And this is his plan for you because you right now in your seat are bringing him glory. And this is for your good because he has a plan for you if he's called you according to his purposes. But as you think about God's kindness and mercy, inevitably it should push you, it should push us to kindness and goodness toward one another in the church. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is not contingent. It is not contingent on whether or not someone else deserves it from you. It is not contingent. If it was, God would have never been kind or good to us. Kindness and goodness are unmerited. You don't earn them. The same thing should be true for our kindness and goodness to others. They should not have to earn your kindness or goodness to them. You owe it to God to be kind and to be good. Faithfulness. One commentator points this out. Paul here is talking about one's devotion to God. Faithfulness to God in that sense. Again, this goes back to our God being a perfect God who even from the beginning, after creating us in his image, when we marred that image, we broke God's commands and effectively broke our relationship with him. We were sinners before him then. God made a covenant with us even then. He was faithful even then, and he will be faithful to fulfill that covenant in the end. A covenant of sorts with, with himself first, right? Swearing by his own name in the mere fact that he even gave his word to Adam and Eve that he would do this. God would be faithful if it came out of his mouth to keep what he promised. And if you want to see what faithfulness looks like, just read through the Old Testament and watch it as the people of God over and over and over just reject their covenant God and go after idols and go after all these other pleasures. Yet God doesn't cut them off. He always kept a remnant for himself because he keeps his promises. Not because the remnant deserved it, but because God is faithful. That kind of faithfulness informs the faithfulness between brothers and sisters in community. This is our fruit. We don't bite anymore. We don't devour. We don't covet or murder or steal. We don't do any of these things because we are faithfully devoted to God. And if devoted to God, then we are devoted to the one that God loves. Gentleness. Our God's gentleness towards us flows from his compassion. He knows our frame. Listen to me, saying God knows your frame. He knows you. He treats you as a child. He knows exactly how you receive his discipline the best. He knows exactly how you receive his love the best. And he loves to pour it out on you in those ways because he's created you uniquely to receive it as such. He's gentle with us because he himself is love. He doesn't break any bruised reeds. This doesn't mean he lets us slide when we sin. That sin always has a penalty, whether that penalty's been paid at the cross or you have to bear the consequences of discipline right now. 
But those who are in Christ, that penalty has ultimately been paid. And instead of receiving judgment, we receive the gentle discipline and the correction from the love of our Lord that is for our good. And if you want to know what gentleness looks like, just look at Jesus. Look at him, who never turns away someone who comes to him in faith. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Oh, we say it all the time, but hear it. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus, listen, he was most gentle with the people who genuinely came to him in faith, and he was the harshest with the religious elites who claimed to have all the answers and have everything figured out and never need to hear anything from him. So let that be a lesson to us on how we approach Jesus, how we come to Jesus with our needs. The one who comes in faith, he never turns away. But if we come with pride, he may just rebuke us. Let this also be a lesson on how we ought to be gentle with one another. And we'll see this played out in Galatians 6. But practically today, we are gentle with the repentant brother and sister. Restoring them. With the wayward and hard-hearted, we are stern, never compromising the truth for the sake of correction and admonishing them to come back, to return to the Lord. This is good. Lastly, in, in terms of context of Galatians, probably the major fruit in Paul's argument, self-control. The Lord, as you and I both know, is the epitome of self-control. If you're a parent, you've probably felt that inclination in your heart, whenever it happens, to immediately snap back when one of your children disobeys in some way or, or says something cross, maybe even just something that you don't like because you're a sinner too, right, mom and dad? You're a sinner. And sometimes, let's be honest, the things that make you mad from the kids aren't even necessarily sinful things. It's just things that you don't like because you're a sinner just like me. And I'm guilty of this too. But let us come down discipline on the things that are sinful. But the Lord isn't like that. He doesn't snap immediately. He has perfect self-control. He knows how to teach us wisdom, teach us and lead us in paths of righteousness. And this ties all the way back to the fruit of the Spirit. God exhibits self-control in how he handles us with care and compassion, not hastily and harmfully. Our best interests are always on God's mind when he determines his actions toward us. Sometimes when we, our parents, we discipline our kids, their best interest is not in our mind. Sometimes our best interest and what makes me feel okay and makes me feel comfortable is in my mind when I discipline, not their best intention. But God always disciplines us with their best intention, our best intention in mind. And that was just one example of self-control from the Lord. But one I think relates to the context because the members of this church in Galatia were biting and devouring one another, fulfilling the desire of the flesh, their flesh particularly. It was about them, not the other. It was what they thought was best for them, not what was best for others. They were self-consumed. But when the Spirit produces this fruit of self-control within us, it not only tames our personal appetites, but it also puts others' needs above our own. Their good becomes our interest. And because that's the case, we find ourselves exercising self-control in the power of the Spirit in how we speak to them to their face and speak about them behind their back. How we think about them when we're around them or think when we are away. How we treat them when we come in contact with them or treat them as an enemy when we're far away. We are now, by the Spirit, self 
controlled. Our passions are not raging. The spirit is in control. And it's all for God's glory. And it's for our good. Leads us to the second point. Freedom in the spirit. End of verse 23. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul brings up the law again. And then he brings Christ's crucifixion back into the picture. We hadn't seen this since chapter 2. And in my opinion, this, this actually carries his argument for freedom to the forefront of his mind here. And I think Paul is talking about Christian freedom yet again, like he's been talking about starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. He said it in verse 13. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And I think that all just carries out through right here. It's all one big section, as I said before. But the first thing I want to point out is that there is freedom. There is. Sometimes we just need the obvious thing. There is freedom for those who belong to Jesus. If you belong to Jesus... You've been set free, and I want you to be able to drill that into your head because oftentimes we live like we are enslaved to the law and to the flesh, but I want to drill it that you are free in Christ. The Christian life is one of freedom, walking, talking, living in freedom, the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. And we've talked about that freedom at length, but here in these verses I see two major ways the spirit-filled Christian has been set free. The first is we have been freed to bear fruit. We've been freed to bear fruit. On the tail end of the list of fruit, Paul adds this little line in there. Against such things, there is no law. And the first observation here, like last week, this isn't supposed to be an exhaustive list. He says against such things. It is a representative list of the kind of character that the Spirit produces in those who really do belong to Jesus. These aren't the only fruits of the Spirit. You could add thankfulness in your heart. You could add rejoicing always, uh, ceaseless prayer, cheerful giving. Those are all fruits of the Spirit because we don't do them naturally. We need the Spirit to supernaturally produce in us this kind of God-honoring, Christ-exalting fruit in our lives. And He does. Second observation is about our freedom. Paul says against the various fruit the Spirit produces, there is no law. What were they thinking about the law at this point, remember? The law would restrain Christians from doing evil. Paul turns the thought on its head and here says there is no law against the fruit, meaning there's no letter that can inhibit you. There's no letter that can hinder you, no letter that can limit you, no letter that can keep you from pursuing and producing every fruit that the Spirit has to offer that he produces in you by the boundless and glorious grace and the character of our righteous God. There is no law holding you back from that the Spirit will produce more and more and more and more fruit. And He does so you will live a life of obedience. You will fulfill the law. You will fulfill it in every way because it is love for God and love for your neighbor that fulfills the law, says Jesus. Second thing, we've been freed from the law in the flesh. At this point, we're beating a dead horse, but it's really important for us to drill it in. There are two things that Paul has pointed out that enslave us to this present evil age. The evil age that the Lord Jesus freed from, freed us from, okay? 
And again, he said, there is no law for these fruits, which means that the Spirit produces this in us. There's no need for the letter. So he's freed us from the law. There's no need for the letter looming over our heads in order to, to, for us to live a proper God-honoring life. And that's because we have the Spirit living in us, and He will do that for us. So we are free from the law. The law was given because of the trespass. Romans 5, it was given because people are evil. It increased the trespass. It has no power for us to overcome evil by following it. But if the law was fulfilled by the power of the Spirit, then we no longer need the law to honor God. I love what one commentator writes about this. He says, there's no need for law to say you shall not kill to a people who by the Spirit are loving one another. There's no need to say don't covet to those who are actively pursuing the good of others in kindness. We are free from the law because we now can live lawfully. And the second thing, we're also free from the flesh. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Both sides of the coin on display, both issues that Paul has wanted to address directly, both to correct the Judaizers' misunderstanding of the law and the spirit and the current age, and to guard the church against law-keeping to be right with God, to gain standing before God. God himself produces real righteousness, and he does it by his spirit in those who belong to Jesus. Those who belong to Jesus. It is Jesus who first and foremost sets us free. Think of Galatians 2.20. Paul says it. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Saint, remember, it was at the cross that Jesus freed us. And he freed us from both law-keeping to be right with God enslavement to the flesh and its desires and passions. It was the cross where Jesus fulfilled every dot and tittle of the letter and he put that old man to death. The letter does not hang over us, condemning us, because Christ hung on the tree for righteousness to be accredited to us. The flesh does not have power over us to make us do what it wants because Christ put the flesh to death, nailing it to the cross with its passions and its desires, and now it has no power because His power is in us by the Spirit, keeping in us, sanctifying us, producing in us all the righteousness that God requires. You can be free and live free this morning, Christian, because your freedom was purchased. You have freedom. So by faith, believe that you have freedom because it's yours. Believe the promise that Christ has set us free at the cross. You're not bound by legalistic standards for righteousness to merit your way to God because Christ is perfect. You could never be perfect. And he gives you righteousness by faith and his life, death, and resurrection in your place. You're not bound. You are not bound to your passions or your desires because every single one of your passions and desires was crucified with Jesus on the cross. Think about that for a minute. A lot of times we think about the sins we commit as those sins that are nailed to the tree. According to this text, Jesus also puts to death the flesh's passions and its desires. Do you believe that? Is there a passion or desire that's been wreaking havoc in your heart? Remind that passion or that desire that its grave is right over there at the foot of Jesus' cross. It cannot stay 
Every single passion and desire of the flesh was crucified with Christ. Even the ones that nobody else can see inside your heart that only you know. You and God know the things that are inside your heart. He sees them. Those things were crucified. And when you remind those passions and desires about their grave, you know where you're going to be looking? At the feet of Jesus. And that's where your eyes should stay. Not me in the mirror. On Jesus. What we have here in our freedom to bear fruit and our freedom from the law and the flesh is the fulfillment of what the Lord said he would do in Ezekiel 36. Just listen to 20, verse 27. The Lord says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Glory to God. He didn't leave us alone to do it by ourselves. He's doing it with us. He's doing it for us. By his spirit living in us. Jesus did what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He became a curse for us so that in him we might be reconciled to God. And now those who belong to Christ by faith have his spirit. And the spirit produces everything we need for life and godliness. And it's really important here to catch when Paul says crucified. And connect it back to Galatians 2.20. This means we were spiritually... Paul wasn't dead. He didn't die literally on the cross with Jesus. So what is he trying to say? He's trying to say that spiritually, his flesh, the desire of the flesh, the works of the flesh, it was all crucified with Jesus at his cross on Calvary. So when we repent of our sins and we trust in Jesus, every single one of those things are dead and gone. In a way, our flesh was there with him on the tree, nailed to the tree with him where he paid for every single sin and passion and desire contrary to the will of God. There was a spiritual transformation that happened there. When the old man died, our desire of the flesh, he died and the new man was born, filled with the Spirit. This is what Jesus says in John 3. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Even, even just thinking about baptism. We have a few students who are going to take the class. Praise God. And this is what baptism represents. We were buried with Christ. Old man dead. Crucified with him at the cross. And we are risen with Christ to new life. We now have hope for resurrection in the future. Absolutely. But I want to encourage you today. If you have faith in Christ today, you have hope for life today. Because the spirit of Christ lives in us today and produces his fruit in us today. Whatever we, we do in the water physically represents what has happened to us spiritually by the Holy Spirit, this washing of regeneration. Now, one major application I want to make here for you and I. If the Spirit has set us free, and the Spirit freely produces the fruit in us, hear me, we should not create laws around the fruit in this text. This is what I mean. And I'm guilty of this, so I know it quite well. Letters do not produce life. They don't have power to do so. The Spirit gives life. So trying to make a list and telling yourself, I need to love more today. I need to be more joyful today. I need to be more patient today. Making all your New Year's resolutions about being patient with that one guy at work. All these things, if done for the sake of accomplishment, by our own strength, they will all fail. So don't create a law out of this list, because again, spoiler alert, that's not what the list is for. The list is not exhaustive. This list is to show you 
what spirit-filled Christian lives look like when they walk by the Spirit. This is not to show us what we should try to accomplish by our own strength now that we're Christians in order to be right with God. Or worse, if you aren't a Christian and you look at this text and you see other Christians doing this stuff and you think, I want to be a Christian, so, so I'm going to do all these things in this list, that's wrong. That's not the way that we live. You think you got to have all these things nailed down before you become a Christian? That's not the case. That's not the gospel. Friend, where does the fruit come from? The fruit comes from the Spirit of God living inside of a person. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, you can't produce this kind of stuff. You might produce something that you think looks a lot like love, but in the end, it's going to turn out to be a cheap imitation. And because it will inevitably lose its taste, right, it's going to wear out. You might produce something that looks like patience or forbearance, but inevitably, somebody's going to step on the wrong nerve. They're going to push the wrong button, and you're not going to forbear with them anymore. We look to Jesus. We don't look to fruit. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Without Jesus, none of the fruit is possible. And if Jesus didn't give us his spirit, none of this would even be possible, even with a clean slate. So theologically, it's just as important that Christ died and gave us a clean slate, forgiving us of all of our sin, as he does live inside of us by the spirit and producing righteousness. We need him every step of the way. Every hour we need him. And with that application in mind, don't look at the letter. Don't create new laws for yourself. I got to do this today, this today, this today. My encouragement to you is look to Jesus and just walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Final point this morning and a lot of application. Verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, oh, sorry, the, the point. Follow the Spirit. Follow the Spirit. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. When Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, he's connecting it back to 24. The old man was crucified, dead, buried, but we are alive. If we live, meaning if we've been given new life. This also harkens back to to chapter 3, 3. We are alive spiritually by faith, no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. So, so to put this verse a different way, Paul could say this. If we, who have died with Christ, now live by His Spirit. We don't live any other way. We live by His Spirit. If we've truly been made alive by His Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. The truth is that we are alive. We cling to that truth. But I love this verse because it makes it clear that we don't do so passively as believers. We're not passive. We don't hold out for hope, so to speak, like the Spirit is just going to produce all this fruit in us while we're sitting in a dark room by ourselves and we don't have anything to do with it. Just like walk by the Spirit is an imperative for the Spirit-filled Christian to walk by His power and His paths in the same way. Keep in step with the Spirit is an imperative to follow in His directions. Keep in his steps. Follow in the footsteps of Christ. You need to do this. Walk in the Spirit's paths by his power because you are indeed alive by the Spirit, not dead in the flesh. And this is what you're called to do. You can see this in contrast here. Verse 25 and 26 are contrast. Led by the Spirit and then what it looks like to be led by the flesh still. Which will lead us into Paul's practical applications next week. But to end our time this morning, Paul exhorts us again. Keep in step with the Spirit. Same language as walk by the Spirit. 
This is how we ensure the the production of the Spirit's fruits in our lives. This is how we ensure that we don't live like slaves under the law or the flesh, but we live as slaves to our Lord Jesus in the freedom that Jesus has purchased for us. So I've got a few applications on how to do this practically as we close out our time. First, I just want to remind you of some truths to remember. Truths to remember. There's three truths. One, remember the Christian life is not passive. It's not passive. We don't sit around and wait for God to do a work in us. We pursue after God. Remember, he is our greatest satisfaction. He's our greatest delight. We pursue after him wholeheartedly. We put our faith in Jesus. We walk by the Spirit in his ways. We must do these things all in the backdrop of trusting God and his power. James makes it really clear in the New Testament. Faith without works is dead. That's to say that our faith is living. It is evident. Like Paul says earlier in chapter 5, faith working through love. Love manifesting itself in service. You can see whether or not someone has genuine faith because it looks like that person is keeping in step with the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit because they're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Number two, remember this truth. We keep in step with the Spirit by the Spirit's power, not our own. Spirit's power, not our own. Remember this. Drill it into your mind because it will force you to reconsider whose strength you're relying on in your battle with sin and your walk with the Lord each day. It will reorient your eyes to Jesus in a way that you need to be fully dependent on His Spirit to live a life pleasing to God today. Third thing, remember we keep in step with the Spirit by walking in His paths, not our preferences It's about his paths, not our preferences. And there are honestly some things that that you're going to see in the scripture when you you read scripture that will rub you the wrong way. You might feel that, but you're called to obey the inerrant and fallible word of God. Think about this. The command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When's the last time you felt inclined every single day to really love your enemies and pray for the people who persecute you? When your enemy free and when you're persecution free, it seems pretty easy like you're going to be able to do that during that time. But what about when you do have enemies? What about when you do feel persecuted? Are you going to be inclined to obey then, to love them, to pray for them? You'll be tempted to disobey. But if you keep in step with the Spirit, you obey His path, you walk in His paths and His directions, not your preferences, you will obey. You will love them and you will pray for those who persecute you. Second big application, prayers to pray. We got to pray. We got to pray about this. If you don't pray about this, we shouldn't expect this thing to happen. We shouldn't expect fruit to manifest in our life. We shouldn't expect to grow. Pray. One, regularly put yourself in a posture of dependence by praying. Force yourself if you have to. Schedule it. Plan it. We plan things that we care about. So plan to pray. Start your day with prayer. End your day with prayer if you want. Pray at meals. Pray between meals. There's not one thing that you and I have that was not given to us by God. Let's at least praise Him for that in prayer. Let's pray. The more we pray, the more dependent we will become on God. And the more dependent we become, the better off we will be. We have to be dependent on our Lord. Second, pray for the Spirit to produce these fruits in your life. Make a list to pray, not a list of laws to keep, okay? Make a list to pray. Pray through each one of those fruits and ask the Holy Spirit to produce more of that fruit in your life. Even pray and ask the Spirit where you've been off and where you're not bearing that kind of fruit so the Father can prune you. 
As you abide in the vine, in Christ, the Spirit will reveal to you those ways you haven't been loving, you haven't been joyful, you haven't been patient. Who else is going to reveal those to you? He will. And in, when we're in community, we can see it together as well. But pray through that list. And praying through that list also has added benefit of memorizing Scripture. So you're putting Scripture in your brain, replacing all the lies. Third thing, pray for the Spirit to give you the power to walk and the paths to walk in. We don't have the power to obey, and we don't even always know how we ought to obey. So I would encourage you to pray this kind of prayer and trust that the Holy Spirit will give you the power to do so, to obey, and give you a clear direction, clearer ways on how to obey in certain circumstances as he sees fit. And the third application, follow the Spirit. Follow the Spirit. Bear the Spirit's fruit without restraint. Seek to display this fruit as often as possible. As often as possible. And every opportunity is possible. If you have a chance to love somebody who hates you, love them. If you have a chance to forbear with somebody who's difficult, forbear with them. If you have a chance to bring joy into a dark or despairing situation, then bring it. If our flesh and its passions and desires have been crucified, if they really have, the Spirit produces in us new passions and new desires. So walk in obedience to those new passions and new desires for God's glory and for your good and for your neighbor's good. Do good. you got to do something. Second thing there, rely on the Spirit's power without hindrance. You know what hinders you? Sin. Sin hinders you. So confess your sin to God. Repent of your sin. Keep short accounts and keep walking by the Spirit. Shame and guilt hinder you. So confess shame and guilt to God and ask for a reminder from Him who you are in Jesus. Fear of man will hinder you. So, and that's fear of both Christians and non-Christians men as you're following the Spirit. So repent of fearing men more than God and rely on the Spirit's power to walk how He's commanded you to walk. And the last application, follow the Spirit's paths without hesitation. Don't hesitate. The paths of righteousness laid out clearly in His Word first. Second, those paths you recognize the Spirit leading you in daily. In accordance to His Word, you may not have every answer to everything, but if you're walking by the Spirit, you're going to know exactly what to do. Because think about this. In those moments when you're battling, you're really angry with your children. Who is it in your mind that reminds you to check your tone and how you're touching your children? Who is it in your heart that presses your heart to go talk to that one man or woman you've been thinking about for weeks about Jesus? Who is it? Who is it that reminds you when you're in the pits of despair and darkness and struggling with assurance, who is it that reminds you in your mind and heart that you are a child of God, redeemed by Christ, to get you out of that funk that you're in with your guilt and your shame? Who is it that makes your mind and your heart feel at peace? It's the Spirit of God. So we got to rely on him. We have to listen to him. We have to trust him, obey him, follow his paths without hesitation because his paths are paths of righteousness and paths of righteousness lead to eternal life. Follow the spirit without hesitation and he will keep your paths straight no matter where he takes you. If you're following him, you're in a good spot. Let's pray.